Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, Clay speaks with professor and chair of the Department of Political Science, Mark Krasinski. In their conversation, Professor Krasinski discusses his research on peace and conflict and how this shapes his approach to university leadership. Thank you so much for coming. You will be chair of your department beginning next week. Next week. Let's talk yes. about that. So it was, it was time to, for my turn to give back. I grew up here. This was my first job, 1999, and I enjoyed a succession of very talented chairs who just helped me grow the program that I could grow and hire other faculty to do peace science research, which is what I do. And uh, it, it got to be that point where, I, you know, they, these windows come by every five to ten years where you have an opportunity to, to serve and give something back, and this was my turn. That's excellent. And you, you work in the political science department. Your specialization is international relations, correct? Yes. Uh, do you see any, uh, already, just before you start, any, um, any ways that uh, your knowledge of international relations may inform your work as a chair? Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, my particular research special specialty is peace and conflict. And so we do a lot of, when I teach that to my students, I teach bargaining. Um, that's one perspective to understand how conflict happens and really why, why it happens when it shouldn't. And so there's a, there is a science to understanding when you can avoid conflict that we apply at the international level, but I imagine it works just as well. It's really human management, in a way, political right. science. Is there any aspect of that science that you can possibly share in an example? Yeah, sure. So there are three concepts in particular that can help explain a lot of when and why things go wrong in world politics. The first is this notion of, of social construction, the values and, and beliefs and fears and expectations that humans create can be manipulated through social connections and and we can study the way those things evolve over time for example now we have we were really after the end of the cold war we developed a new narrative of a war on terror and we can see how those early steps to craft that narrative are still kind of with us now uh, and affect the way we process things like travel bans so that that's probably the most murky and complex of the concepts. Within the, this sort of lens of bargaining models, you can just look at two particular pieces. One is this notion of private information. When you go to, like, I just, just bought a car. And, Congratulations. Uh, thank you. <laughs> and you're sitting there having this conversation with the salesperson who's trying to maintain as much private information as, as, as they can about how low a price they're willing to. To, to go to, and you're trying to maintain as much private information about how much you will spend on this car. And no matter how many rounds of interaction, you're never going to fully get rid of that notion that they're keeping something back from me. That plays out in world politics, too. When somebody says, I need this piece of land because it's my homeland and my grandfather's grandfather was born there and, uh, and has all this religious significance for me, this is, this is key. And I will die for this. 
And you're thinking, well, maybe you will, maybe you won't. And I can't get a straight answer. I mean, no matter how much we talk it out, we'll always face that. And that, so that's a private information problem. And that, helps, that can help us understand uh, the world wars to current, current events. The last one is commitment problems. So what the deal I make today uh, can unravel uh, tomorrow. Because particularly in civil war, where you have a rebel group and a government, let's say they, like in, in Colombia, they just reached a new landmark peace agreement. The implementation of that agreement is really hard because the rebel group has to hand over its guns or get rid of them. As soon as it does, the power dynamic has changed irrevocably, and the state, which is now far more powerful relative to the rebel group than it was yesterday, is really tempted to renegotiate. There, you just took Poly 150. That's awesome. <laughs> that was great. So you were, you were a faculty fellow in 2013 through the Chapman Family Teaching Award. You're about to be chair of your department. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how important it is for faculty to take leave and what that does for you personally? Yeah, it, it's the most precious resource that we have. You know, we're, you're, you're talking to a bunch of people who gave up the big bucks for time to think and have some autonomy in what we do. Right? And, and the thoughts we craft and the work, the product that we craft. And what that leave did for me, it came at a great time because I was a little burnt out. I had been teaching a lot and building. I um, really developed this peace science program that we have in the political science department with the help, of course, of everyone else. But I was, I was pooped. And I know it's ironic that a teaching award gives you time off from teaching. But it gave me the opportunity to recharge, which I did right away, but also to kind of lean into some ambitious research projects that I wouldn't have had time to get started or finish if I hadn't had that opportunity. So it cuts you loose, not just from the, the teaching obligations, but all the tiny paper cuts of meetings that pop up every day and every week. And this particular um, award, like all the IAH fellows, you just all you, you do is come once a week to kind of engage with a community that you wouldn't normally talk to, in my case, sort of a, a little bit on the outside of the humanities. And that was wonderful. I was able to talk about my research, and I'm really forced to talk about that research in ways that were outside the jargon of my normal interactions, and that's always healthy. Uh, but it allowed me to start a new project on economic competition and conflict that I, I had been mulling over for years. And it was key in helping me finish a, a project on uh, reputation and world politics. That's now a book coming out, uh, hopefully this year. It's oh, in production. That's great. So. That's wonderful. I wanted to ask you, especially because you, because you won the Chapman Family Teaching Award, what, uh, what is your philosophy in teaching? Or what well, is important to you? One of my favorite things to do is to reflect the, the R1 nature or the research nature of this university to help give the students a product they can't get anywhere else, right? an experience they can't get anywhere else. You know? So my philosophy is to, whenever possible, get rid of the textbook, and show the students the raw research, teach them how to read it, and help them foster this analytical, critical perspective that will survive long after they've left my classroom, right? It's, 
tempting, I think, for a lot of, of places uh, who teach, you know, places that teach political science, in particular world politics, where the students may not be at all familiar with the countries you're talking about, or the, the actors, or the really the dynamics of trade and conflict, all that stuff is, can be new. It's very tempting to slide into what I would call an encyclopedic rut, where you're just kind of walking through the, the daily details of, well, here's the UN, you know, here's the UN Security Council, did you know there are five permanent voters, you know, that kind of stuff. Can really, you can really slide into that, and there's so much to cover. That, 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 and that's, I think, interesting on one level, but they don't really need me for that. What I can do is I can teach them to step back and process these streams of information and say, okay, so why, given that we have a UN, why doesn't it work better? Why don't we see more? And why didn't it work at all for, for collective security and peacekeeping during the Cold War? What was happening and what explains that? And really just kind of empower them to, when they leave the classroom, to sort of process world politics events and understand how it fits into an analytical framework. And the other part of my philosophy, I like to infuse my classrooms with as much ongoing research discussion as possible. So I'll set aside a couple of weeks where I talk about research projects that somebody in my department is doing, so whether it's me or Lena Mosley, Stephen Gent, Naven Bapit, all these people who are doing politics of, of international relations research, but it's not published yet. Right? And I'll, they'll share their working drafts with me and... Um, I'll walk the students through this, this stuff. And it's stuff that, that you really couldn't learn if you didn't go to UNC. And I just think that that should be what a student expects. You know, coming to a place like this, this is really one of the, the, the neatest things. There's so much cutting-edge knowledge percolating on this campus. And I'm trying to do a better job of sharing more of that knowledge with the students instead of the stuff that's been kind of digested and, and reconstituted in textbook fashion. It's really great to hear you say that because I, I, when I first came to Chapel Hill, I took a class on the history of North Carolina because I'm from Chicago and I didn't know that much about the state and mm. I wasn't able to take the class up until 1865 because it had passed. So I took the one from 1865 and the professor who was teaching the class was working on a book on the Daily Tar Heel, the history of the Daily oh, Tar Heel. Yeah. And so I learned so much about the history of this campus from that, just getting to read that um, text um, than any tours or anything I could have done because it was from the students over generations wow. um, yeah. and learning what, what, what it was like to be here at that time. So you sharing that, shows me this culture of that kind of knowledge sharing here, just yeah. fantastic. It's, it's important. And I think we're probably our, at our best as teachers when we are teaching about our research because we're so enthusiastic. Right. You know? <laughs> we, we're evangelical about our research. <laughs> uh, and so it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, last year... I was the UNC faculty in residence on a riverboat cruise through Europe, through the, the GAA. And I, I was tasked with giving a couple of talks to, to the boat. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? I know I, I can't get away with like, you know, a history of Europe and world politics talk to this crowd. They know way more about this than I do. Uh, there's a former ambassador on the boat. They're, mm -hmm. you know, sta state officers. It was, it, it, this is an intelligent crowd. So I thought, well, I just need to teach what I know. 
And uh, I gave the first lecture on that bargaining model stuff I was talking about. And then the second lecture was on current research, just because I thought, all right, here's something. You have to be on this boat to, to, to know. And they just loved it because they could tell I loved it. And there's really no substitute for that energy. What is a book, this is a question we ask all of our guests. What is a book you, you've read that changed your life? When I was a kid, I read All Quiet on the Western Front. And that, I was so mad when I read that book. So frustrated. Couldn't believe it. It was probably a, a, an important piece of the puzzle as to why I ended up studying peace and conflict. Because what that, you know, it's not a perfect book, but what that book accomplishes is it humanizes the soldier experience and gives you a long enough exposure to the soldier to reveal the just all the stupid things about war and how humans have to endure it and seemingly for no reason and no progress. Right? So it's a tragedy, of course. Uh, most people don't read it that way, I think, but it really profoundly affected me in the, and I didn't understand. I remember going for a walk with my parents after dinner because I grew up in California and after dinner we'd stroll around the block just kind of talk. It was our time to talk. And I remember just asking my parents why would people get us into these situations, right? Why did they have to fight this war? Why did these guys who I was reading about in this book, why did they have to endure this experience? Uh, and not getting satisfactory answers. <laughs> so that, that I maybe was one of the first pushes to set me off on this path. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Wow. How old were you when you read that? I think I was 14. At the time, I just wanted to be rich. <laughs> right? I was a difficult kid. Uh, and even in college, I think I started off as an econ major, uh, which still affects my research now. It wasn't until in college, in the Tiananmen Square incident, that I... I really shifted more to a focus, an explicit focus on studying politics. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. That was great. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.